This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. Our guest today is, is Dr. Mary Caton Lingold, Assistant Professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University. That's right. That's and I can't believe you're a professor of English and you're also a musician and you're doing this history and it's like anthropology really, isn't it? Um, yeah, my work is all over the place. It is the earliest notated transcription of um, African or Afri Afro-American music that I know of. Baptiste is probably one of the first Black American composers on record. <laughs> Hello, Mary Caton. I'm so glad to meet you both. Hi. Nice to see and, you as well. You go by William? William is fine, yes. You have two first names. I do, and thank you for catching that. Um, and I want to get your name right. Will you pronounce it for me? Tosin. Tosin. Okay, just like it looks. Yes. But that's okay. the easy nickname version, isn't it? Mine? Oh, yes. Well, yes, sort of, yes. Go on, give mary Kate in the full, the full version. Well, I heard it on the podcast. I was listening to... Oluatosi um, Oluere Rotimi. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> Thank you. Listen, it's lovely that you could join us. Mm -hmm. um, the program's called In Our City. So it's presented by me and Tosin, obviously. So Tosin and I picked up on this. There's this huge pile just up the road called Durham Park. You know, monstrous, enormous, ridiculous. School children get kind of dragged out there, kicking and screaming and sort of taken around, told how interesting it is. But the guy who runs it is a lovely um, National Trust regional director, Tom Bowden. And he's got this program for decolonizing local history. Mm -hmm. And it's in that context that we came across today's guest. What astounds me, I think it astounds everyone, is the amount of the music we love that seems to have come from the African diaspora. I mean, it's just disproportionate, isn't it? Or oh, I suppose all of Latin music, all of blues and rock and jazz and then all the Caribbean music of reggae and ska and calypso. It, I mean, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? The prevalence of African diaspora music in modern culture. So can I ask you how you sort of got involved in the whole project and what it means? Sure. Um, well, it really gets to this, uh, this issue of the just tremendous influence of African music and um, music of African diasporans in the wake of the slave trade. Uh, because as William said, that's exactly right. I mean, you can hardly turn on the radio or Spotify and not hear the story of slavery and the way that the story of how enslaved people um, carried their music into new lands with them under the duress of enslavement. So my interest in, um, you know, uh, music and slavery and um, of uh, this particular project, Musical Passage, that um, sort of recovers an early record of African diasporic musical life in Jamaica. 
Um, it comes out of two things for me. One, I'm a musician and I love music. <laughs> so, um, and uh, most of the music I play, uh, as I play Americana music and bluegrass music, I'm a fiddler, I sing, I play country music. And, um, you know, all of that music is shaped by the black experience um, and, and this legacy. What I was told was that Mary Caton and her team have been investigating the very, very earliest uh, recorded in the sense of notated music of West African origin. And that just it was extraordinary to me because when you think of how much flows out of that, it just seemed to me the most astonishing thing that there should be a record which is so early. And that's what we want to hear from you about, Mary Caton. This, so yes. Where did that come from? Where did the record come from? How much of it is there? And then I think we get a chance to listen to some of it later and we can, we can discuss it and talk about it. Yeah, so um, the record comes from within a larger book um, that's called Voyage to the Islands um, of Madeira, St. Uh, Neves, St. Christopher, uh, Jamaica. kind of has one of these long, long 18th century titles. That book was published in 1707 by Sir Hans Sloan who was um, a natural historian, a physician to members of the royal family. He was a member of the you know, academic elite of his day. Um, Sloan Square is uh, in London and you know, his personal collections, um, he donated to the crown after his death. He was a massive collector of uh, you know, flora and fauna specimens, but also books. And uh, his collection helped to found what is now the British Museum. Um, and he went in his younger years, traveled to Jamaica as the personal physician of uh, the Duke of Albemarle, who was appointed governor. And um, he sort of went along with him because he was curious about uh, the Americas. And um, when there, uh, the, the Duke died not long after they got there. He was sort of a, known for his um, large appetites and wine and food, <laughs> and he did not last long in the disease-ridden <laughs> tropics. We all blame um, Sloan for that. I mean, he was, he was yeah. his doctor, you know, a year later, the guy is dead. <laughs> so years later, Sloan came back and, uh, you know, being the scholarly type that he was, he of course wanted to publish all of his notes from his medical practice that he undertook in Jamaica and also, um, he can, you know, wrote within this larger genre called uh, of colonial travel literature that was very popular, already well established. So he wrote this book, um, and in it he includes this notated music um, that was actually not transcribed by him. It was transcribed by a man named Mr. Baptiste. Um, and he doesn't tell us anything about this Mr. Baptiste fellow, except that he was the best musician there. And I'd like to read to you um, what Sloan writes about the music. Um, he says, uh, and, and, and by the way, this is, I'm writing a book about this subject. It was really common for travelers to write about music that they encountered. Um, and there's actually an extraordinary number of descriptions of African and African diasporic music from the period, also descriptions of indigenous American music and from the East Indies and elsewhere. Uh, but this um, notated transcriptions in Sloan's work is really, to my knowledge, and I'm sure there's something else out there, but I've looked at a lot of it, 
it is the earliest notated transcription of um, African or Afri Afro-American music that I know of. Um, now there's that you can quibble with that. There's some other, uh, so it's really remarkable in that it documents not just early Afro-Jamaican music, but also African music in three different traditions. Um, so I'll get to that and I'll read to you what Sloan says about it. He writes, upon one of their festivals, when a great many of the Negro musicians were gathered together, I desired Mr. Baptiste, the best musician there, to take the words they sung and set them to music, which follows. And then he writes this little explanation that says, you must clap hands when the bass is played and cry Allah, Allah. Now this Allah, Allah, what does that mean? Uh, it could refer to the Islamic deity. Of course, many um, enslaved Africans were practicing Muslims. Um, some even, you know, read and wrote in Arabic and the um, Islamic faith survived in the Americas. Um, or it could refer to the practice of ululation, um, which is common, you know, a vocalization that uh, in many African traditions, um, women especially would, would uh, use that. And can I just check? The mm -hmm. musical notation that appears in Hans Sloan's book, is that what we, like a sort of modern contemporary musical notation or, or, or was it sort of different in that time? Is it something that a modern musician would simply look at and say, yeah, I can read those notes? Yeah, a modern musician can read the notes, absolutely. Wow. Um, there's, the notation um, is lacking in quite a bit of information. You can, what these are, are, you know, fairly, simplified melodies of what would have been complex performances. So European notation is designed for musicians in the European Western tradition to be able to perform their music. <laughs> it's not designed for these African traditions. So there's a lot of information missing. Um, and so it really is just a trace of these performances. It's not, um, there, there's a lot of inaccuracy Deviations, okay. but it's also it's nonetheless really remarkable. And another thing that's remarkable about it is that it actually portrays three different um, groups, uh, three different genres as they were performed. So the first piece listed is titled Angola, the second piece is titled Papa, and the third Cormanti. So these refer to um, ethnic groups, nationalities, um, representative of the people in Jamaica at the time. Now, whether or not these descriptors accurately matched the performers and the performances is a little more questionable. Um, there's a lot of room for error there. But I do think it's, it's remarkable in that also the sounds of these music is very different. You know, so you get a sense of the richness and the complexity and the, the variety of music that was performed um, in enslaved communities and in early modern Africa. I've got so many questions, but Tozin, okay. what, do you, what, what do you make of this? What do, what do you make of the idea that, that from, the, from the 1600s, we've got a transcription of what was thought to be West African music? Well, I've listened to, obviously listened to some of it, and um, we will obviously go through that a little bit later. It's, 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 it's interesting. Not what I, well, not what I was expecting, but I, but then I don't really know what I was expecting, yep. but it, somehow it wasn't, it wasn't it, but that doesn't make it any less for being so. It was just not what I was expecting. There's less of a correlation maybe to some of the sounds, 
that I hear emerging now from, you know, or, or that I grew up with. But nevertheless, you know, they, it, we there's a history of things in diaspora somehow remaining closer to what they were because they have a reason for keeping things like, you know, whereas people um, in, in Africa at home tend to be moving, constantly evolving. Um, and they have, but people in diaspora have a reason not to want to evolve so they can retain mm. what they call a degree of authenticity. So that makes yeah. it, it explains the dissonance maybe what amazes me about this project of mary Caton is, is it's like the first fusion of those two things you have you know a spontaneous oral musical tradition and yet it's, it's like a sort of butterfly collection it's like hans sloan isn't it it's captured it's captured in a glass jar and and then and then it's reignited and when i listened to it i thought it was so spontaneous and rhythmical and contemporary i mean eerily contemporary really but let's yeah should we listen to some yes Please. Please. Let me give a little introduction. In the Please do, yeah. yeah. Um, for each of the pieces, since there's really just a simple melody portrayed on uh, in the notation, one of our goals in creating the project was just to make this music more accessible to more people. Yeah. So that if a musician in Jamaica wanted to study this music or, you know, just make a simple recording that they could use, or a lot of scholars who are interested in this material don't read music, so they might come across it but not really understand it and we just wanted to kind of lift it from the page and make it more accessible by creating very preliminary recordings not meant to be like the authoritative this is what it sounded like but instead you know here's a, a good version we can use to go new places with it and so for each of the pieces we did one version that was just really simple bare bones here's what's on the page um, and then we did a second version, trying to maybe play around a little bit more with interpreting it more richly. So I'd like you to play first um, the Angola recording that's just voice and uh, fretless banjo. Side note, Sloan's book also contains the first known image of a New World banjo. Wow. And uh, so there's some inference that at least some of these pieces probably would have been played on that instrument. Okay, so here we go. Here's Angola with voice and fretless banjo. It's compelling, isn't it? I mean, it's a familiar scale, but there are variants in it. Yeah, it's... Um... You know, I think it's a really wonderful, wonderful tune. Um, it was difficult to sing at first and to find the right key for it. Um, that's my voice in the recording. Oh, very and, good. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't spot that. Did you, Tosin? I did. Ah. Um, and well, I didn't know whether you were a white woman or a black woman, if, that's, oh. if, that, if that is of any interest at all. That's and my price. Yeah, well, yes, I, I saw, I went to go and look for a sort of picture of what who, because I thought it seemed as though you were uh, in terms of the academia um, or your path. But when I listened to the voice, I was like, oh, maybe she's a black woman. So I went to have a look. So it was lovely. It was lovely. Very powerful. Thank you. Thank I you. I, you know, it's, um, 
it, it was really interesting as a vocalist to try to figure out how to sing it. Um, I certainly didn't want to affect a kind of Africanness or Blackness, but I also wanted to think about the vocal tradition. It was rich. And it wasn't, knew, you didn't sound as if you were trying to be Black. You, you just sounded rich. It was rich. <laughs> Thank you. It's a, it's a sort of compelling call. You kind of want to join in. And the banjo feels, again, very contemporary. It feels like, I don't know what you might hear from Tina Warren or, or, or uh, I suppose, uh, African desert musicians. So it, yeah, it, it feels sort of root, yeah, rooted and, and contemporary. And it's astonishing to think it's, it's that early. So then you, you took the, the basic version, which is the melody that's written down and... The, the banjo part is also is, is written down as well, or you know which keys it should be in? The notes are there, but we do not know. The transcriptions don't say what instrument it should be played on. Okay. So yeah. that was a challenge. We kind of assumed, um, you know, uh, we thought we'd try it on the banjo. And then, but we also would imagine that there would probably be some sort of percussion involved um, or multiple voices. So when we recorded it a second time, we try to, to create more of a, a of a chorus. That works brilliantly. And then, interestingly, this piece has, um, I traveled to Jamaica in 2018 when I was actually doing some research on Mr. Baptiste, the uh, composer of these pieces, and I'd love to share a little bit about him in a moment. But when I was there, I had the um, wonderful opportunity to meet with um, the University of West Indies, Mona Corral, um, the University Corral, and do a workshop with them we worked on the Angola piece together to learn their interpretations of the music. And they, um, the chorale actually adopted the piece into their um, repertoire. Fantastic. And another workshop that was in 2017, um, 
when uh, Earl Chinna Smith, a uh, great reggae guitarist in his band, In a De Yard, also interpreted um, this song, Angola. So I think for me, what's been really inspiring has been to hear Jamaican musicians' interpretations of the music. It feels to me fantastic and sort of seamless. And I'm really interested to see how it's received at Durham Park, you know, this slightly formal, sort of fusty place where as soon as you start to open up the narrative of Britain at the time and Africa, you have to go through a long and quite difficult history. And I really feel for them trying to sort of be faithful to that history without just turning the place into a massive downer. Um, well, you know what's shocking to me when, when the uh, folks from Durham Park reached out to us is how absolutely contemporaneous um, the governor, uh, Blaithwaite, I think I'm saying his name right. Is that we right? We call him Blathwaite uh, here, but, but I mean, we always, we always spit Not after saying right. it as well. Um, yeah. Blathwaite, um, you know, he was absolutely a contemporary of Sloan. And the very moment in which he was sort of powerfully influencing colonization in that movement is the exact same music moment that these musicians um, we're performing these pieces and catching, wow. you know, Sloan's attention. So wow. I, it's, it's really eerie in some ways how uh, I really think that this music can draw our attention to a different kind of legacy. When you, you talked about this big fussy house, you know, this great house that's so famous and important and dripping with, you know, wealth and status. Um, if you compare that with the maybe in some ways invisible, but extraordinarily audible legacy of African musicians across the globe. I mean, these are towering fortresses of meaning that we should all be revering. So yeah. I think in my research, I think of this music and, and these um, performers music on par with the significance and influence of uh, a kind of legacy of a of a you know major uh, colonial administrator. Um, oh, totally. What I was going to sort of add is that you mentioned um, this the beautiful tradition of the music, which is true. But I also think that is it not in set many ways the norm to consume what is produced you know by the script without acknowledgement and and that would have probably happened simultaneously maybe while someone was getting flogged or someone else was getting you know flayed or working there was for them there is no reverence i don't i would imagine in terms of you know listening to that music was just part of what was consumed by the owner oh absolutely i i suppose i mean the um the meaning of it for the people who played it. <laughs> Sorry, not for not for the listeners. I don't think mm -hmm. the list the outsider listeners could grasp. Um, they tried to, like you said, they appropriated it, they consumed it, they published it. But uh, I'm very interested in what these performances meant to the people who were unnamed. You know, to mm -hmm. the enslaved people who created this music, and yes, whose names have largely been forgotten and obscured, not just forgotten but erased and obscured. And uh, I mentioned earlier that I've been doing research on Mr. Baptiste. Yes. And this connects to this issue because people um, assumed that he was a Frenchman, a white European colonist on a similar status of Sloan. Uh, my collaborators on Musical Passage and I, you know, the more we studied the music, we realized that 
whoever transcribed these pieces was had more than a passing understanding of these different genres. Um, these pieces are very mediated, but compared to other similar examples of, you know, attempted transcriptions of non-Western music from the era and later, it's just re remarkably more um, distinct and uh, interesting. And, um, and so we began to think about the likelihood that he may have himself been an African descended person, possibly a free person of color, um, you know, with the kind of bicultural literacies in European arts and letters and music and um, African life in the Caribbean. And um, so I have, you know, all but proven that actually he likely was a person of African ancestry, maybe actually with Spanish heritage, maybe someone um, trained in the Catholic Church. There, his biography is still quite sketchy, but I did uncover some records in the uh, Jamaica archives um, that document a person of African descent with the last name Baptiste during this era. Oh, fantastic. Oh, well done. That's very exciting, so, isn't it? So I actually think that Baptiste is this kind of bridge figure between, um, you know, uh, shared some, um, some experiences with the enslaved people who, uh, you know, rooted in African traditions, um, but also, uh, you know, had something of a Western education as well and probably a free person. You know, his legacy also has been kind of buried within yeah. this larger work and, and from underneath the kind of weight of the gravity of Sloan's um, uh, status, uh, because Baptiste is one of, you know, probably one of the first black American composers on record, you know, that we know yeah. of who actually composed music and he composed African music, which is interesting. Yeah. So should we listen to Caramante one and just the fretless banjo version? child is terribly musical and I don't know where she got it from um so, so I, I I'm I I know so little about music and but it was very enjoyable um what did you think it felt, I suppose to me close closer to in English terms something like a Tudor ditty it felt like a sort of song it did actually, didn't it? yes now yeah. you're saying yes yeah. now you're saying it had a sort of narrative it didn't feel like a dance piece it felt like a thoughtful um narrative piece now we've got the next version with Shakers. Maybe that's the dance version, the, the, the hot dance remix. Coromanti 1, adapted for Banjo and Shakers. <laughs> It's got real rhythm, hasn't it? It's quite different. Is it? Is yeah. it a? Is it a six eight? Well, on the piece it says twelve eight. Twelve eight. Um, yeah. But you know, some of the, you know, I agree with you that of all the pieces, to me, this sounds almost like a yeah, kind of Tudor lute music. Um, it's interesting though. There's a wonderful uh, 
Afro-British composer Tunde Yegede. I don't know if you know, have heard of his work at all. He's a cellist and also a kora player um, in the Gambian griot tradition. And he, um, he's really interested in the intersections between uh, European court music and African court music. And, and he's um, done some interesting work to kind of emphasize the shared the similarities between these traditions, you know, we think of them as quite distinct, distinct, but actually when it comes to the West African griot music, the stringed instruments, um, often, you know, associated with the king's court, um, it is not unlike the kind of courtly Tudor music that, you know, um, we have from uh, England. So um, his work is, is quite interesting on that subject. You mentioned names that get forgotten. I mean, Sloan is sort of the opposite, isn't he? I mean, everyone knows his name because Sloan Square in, in Britain is sort of iconic and associated with a sort of particular, you know, sort of dress and, and, and sort of posh, horsey girls. I mean, you can literally say a Sloan, everyone knows what you mean. And because of the museum. And yet, and he's, I mean, obviously an extraordinary guy with an extraordinary brain and that, you know, the collecting and the writing and the doctoring but how do you see Sloan? I mean, it, we talked about him just looking at this music, I suppose, in a cold and analytic way. I was quite chilled by his, you know, description of disciplining and torture of slaves. And do you think he did that with a kind of dispassionate eye? Or do you think he was talking about, you know, what he felt were the necessary measures for running his wife's business in the way it needs? I mean, how, do you warm to Sloan? How, how, how do you sort of see him? How do you process him? Personally, yeah. Um, no, I don't warm to him because uh, he, he was quite cold and unfeeling, and, and especially not only just the, the wealth that he extracted from the labor of enslaved people from his wife's um, plantations, but when you, it's really fascinating to read um, in, in his book, he kept really careful records of his medical practice in Jamaica. And when he was there, he treated all people, you know, enslaved people, poor whites, um, the most, you know, the governor of the island. Uh, and he, um, so he takes these detailed notes and you can see in them his opinions about the people that he treated. And the, the things that he says, there's one woman who was an enslaved woman who was a mother and she was having some ailment or her infant was ailing and um, she wanted to, she was still nursing her baby even though the baby was older and he was telling her she needed to stop nursing the child and wrote very dismissively about this woman, you know, this crazy woman who thinks she knows what to do for her baby and it, it, little glimmers of moments like that where you see him just um, really not being able to uh, appreciate people's humanity and their voice. When of course, from today's eyes, we, what we know about medicine now is we know that that woman was right, you know, and that she did know what was best for her baby. Um, in fact, he was really terrible at treating tropical diseases. He had no idea what he was doing. And he turned to enslaved healers, um, you know, practitioners of traditional African medicine and indigenous Caribbean um, healers who absolutely knew what they were doing to cure tropical diseases. And so there's this kind of, um, this sense of authority that, on the other hand, as a scholar, of course, I must appreciate his collecting and his circulation. You know, when he was back in, in England, he um, hosted um, Ayuba Jalo, the um, a son of an imam from Senegal who had been enslaved 
and uh, was sort of made his way back home. Um, and he was presented at court in England and met Hans Sloan and Hans Sloan, uh, you know, greeted him. And he, he was always seemed to be, you know, somewhat, um, he, if someone was of his status or education or class, you know, it's not that, I, do I think he was the most virulent racist of the 18th century? Probably not. Um, and yet the interpersonal, the window we get into his interpersonal dealings, particularly during his time in Jamaica, um, is really atrocious. Um, and there are many such details that sort of document the cruelty and, and the kind of cognitive dissonance that was necessary for people to undertake such cruelty, um, you know, while, while proclaiming to be enlightened. And then that's the kind of the rub of the kind of the narrative of the enlightenment itself in this idea of the expansion of the human mind and liberty and, um, you know, and that has, uh, it's really sick when you think about what those same people were doing to other people. Shall we carry on with our musical program and listen to Coromantee 2 with the, with the fretless banjo version be the way to go? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's great. I'm getting good at this. I'm pressing share, fretless banjo. So Coromanti, is, 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 is that associated with a place or with people? Yes, with people from uh, the, the Akan states um, in what is now Ghana. Um, and uh, Coromanti is a, an, an ethnic group with really strong roots in Jamaica and, and throughout the Caribbean at the time, you know, they were really regarded as um, powerful warriors um, associated with, uh, you know, military um, acumen and were, because of that, perceived as quite threatening and rebellious. Um, and there are maroon communities in Jamaica that, um, you know, claim Cormanti as uh, part of their identity. And, uh, you know, so it's, it kind of has a int really interesting um, influence. So it's wonderful to have these uh, under the Cormanti piece. There's actually three different pieces here and they're all quite different. Um, and really intricate. So here's the second of them. isn't it i mean that very quick scale and then and then just the simple inversion and so hard to play i mean oh. uh the the it's it's a really complex melody and and you know shows how um not only what an intricate instrument it must have been to perform but also the the skill of the players um the the person performing here is uh, my collaborator dave k garner who's a composer and a musician a professor of music um, and he, you know, remarked a lot about how difficult this particular piece was to just get in his fingers because it's um, very uh, complex. Well, on a fretless banjo, certainly. I mean, on, on a keyboard, it might be easier, might not it? No, mm -hmm. He did well. He did well. Dave, I hope you told Dave he did a good job. <laughs> so should we play the, the percussion, percussive version of that now? 
So this is uh, with a, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it a djembe? French bandit, banjo and djembe? Yes. Feels like it's definitely meant to come with drums, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It really changes it. And that was one of the things that for me was really wonderful about hearing Jamaican musicians interpret these pieces is that um, the drumming traditions in Jamaica are so extraordinary and there's so many distinctive patterns and uh, drumming styles that um, one of the things that the musicians would do is try different drum rhythms with the piece to see kind of to find a feel. Um, and that's a, a really neat way into a song when you're trying to interpret something across hundreds of years. Um, you can change the instruments, you can change the tempo, you can change the style, but also to add different beats underneath it um, is, is a, I think, actually a really effective way to kind of get at some of the roots potentially of the song and may, how it may have been performed. Because some of these, uh, you know, drumming patterns and traditions are just ancient. And, you know, we talked about diaspora, and the meaning of diaspora. One of the interesting things about, um, you know, Caribbean musicians is that they are influenced by so many different African nations and African genres. So there's a kind of proliferation of, um, you know, in some ways they're, they're really, uh, uh, appropriate for being able to make good sense out of these pieces because they're not coming at it from one tradition. They're really influenced by a kind of pan-African um, tradition. And a lot of uh, musicians trained in Jamaica in this chorale, for instance, they sing music and perform music from across the Caribbean and from across Africa as well. So there's just a, a breadth of knowledge. Can I say that um, when I listen to these pieces by myself, I, it, it's been a very different experience from listening with you and listening with, um, with the comments and the context that you've put in them. To me now, it seems like three very distinct pieces. As you said, William, the second piece very much seems like a courtly Tudor type thing. And then this third piece, now it feels very African. And each one has suddenly got seems very very different different work and thank you for that because you opened my ears and it's it's been a yeah it's it's been a great journey thank you when i thank you because i always learn something new as well hearing other people's response to the music and what they're hearing in it um and and that's really the the point behind the project is to to create the possibility for this kind of experience for us to think about the music together in community and bring our own, our, you know, different sets of ears with different um, knowledge and interests that we bring with us. Um, okay, so I am now going to fire in uh, another track. I think we're going to go for Coromantee 3. Uh, I think we're going to go for the fretless banjo version first. Is that good? Thank you. 
complex phrases aren't they mm -hmm. and much more Ar an arabic sound to the mm. to the scale but mm -hmm. there's probably a technical term for that which which as a complex musician you probably know and i don't but yeah mm -hmm. it, it feels like we're in a different place again doesn't it yeah, yeah it really does and i think it's interesting to think about the arabic influences because absolutely you know before uh commerce in west africa starts to look west um you know with trade with europe and the slave trade um you know, it was the, the, the spice trade and the Silk Road and, and that sort of, um, you know, trade looked eastward and the influence of Islam, um, you know, was great in, in, um, in West Africa at the time. So you, I don't know, um, you know, particularly if that song really truly bears those traces, but it's certainly, I think, more than fair to um, think about the associations between uh, is, Islamic tradition and, uh, West African at the time. Let's hear what you did with the percussion on that one. So this is Coromanti 3, uh, fretless banjo and percussion. interpretation i love it it's really complex isn't it it is i have to say that i i i went up for uh, a few seconds to go and read the poem um oh. yes <laughs> it's interesting I, I, I isn't I it? it it is very interesting and it there is um quite a bit of um i can see it's a bit of a problematic poem yeah um to say the least uh of a well-intended white man um, but who still, you know, uh, it seems that he thinks that um, being black, it's unfair to the way black people are treated, mother and child in this case. But he is, still thinks that being white is better. And um, he's got the, he is, in the voice of the black child, he's got the black child wanting to be white because obviously so yeah it is a bit i can see what he's trying to do but it's problematic but skin, going back skin to, lightning products yeah exactly yes. yeah it, yeah. It yeah. Just fascinating i found it um yeah. very interesting yes mm -hmm. yeah so coromanti three I, I found it quite sort of meditative almost i mean it it, it, it because it's complex it, it's something i suppose you'd you would listen to and and think and go into a reflective state i think it would grow really well with this poem I think you could have that underneath and somebody reading that poem. I think it would, it would work really well. Because as you were doing, as, as the music was playing in the background and I was reading it, it seemed to flow the rhythm. Um, it seemed, yeah. Well, do, and we'll I'm do, not a poetry person. We'll do that mashup and put it on in the Hoban. <laughs> um, Tozin is, is trustee of a local museum in Bath. And, and we first got together to do the show because we had a massive disagreement about this um, 
ex exhibit they put on in the Hoban Museum, which yes. was... Uh, um, uh, Burns, wasn't it? It was a priest. Yes. Yeah, it was a, a Rastafari reciting a Robert Burns poem, The Slave's Lament, set to music mm. by Scottish musicians. Very beautiful, I can send it to you. Um, uh, and I felt that it helps to open up the eyes of sort of complacent, you know, cultured, affluent Bath to that dimension of this museum that they thought they knew so well, which is full of kind of Gainsborough portraits of, of slave owners and stuff. But Tosin was horrified by it. Entirely. Yeah, what do you think about it? I'd love to know your, your thoughts. <laughs> well, I felt that, um, you know, putting uh, a Robert Burns poem in the mouth of a Rastafarian um, inferred, seemed to, you know, um, if you didn't know the history, you would imagine that those were the words of somebody who had experienced mm. um, slavery. So literally making a, this black man a puppet. Um, and um, there were other things, including the fact that the set, the, the, the Scottish musicians were all very beautifully, elegantly dressed. And they had this Rastafarian whose hair was really unkempt, you know, it was the kind of exaggerated sense of what a Rastafarian might look like with, you know, um, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, uh, unclean teeth. And they kept focusing, moving into his mouth. And you could see the gums with his, the rot, the decay. It was, um, and the dishonesty of Robert Burns. What did Robert Burns know of? And he wasn't even a pro-abolitionist. Um, he, was, he was very much, um, I think, on his way to take up an appointment as a um, slave uh, foreman or something in, in, in one of these um, plantations when he suddenly um, hit it with his poetry and then decided not to go. So it was, I felt, in, on so many levels, um, an affront. And that's how I felt. And I took a few black people to go and listen to it. And every single person reacted with the sort of, even when they didn't, I mean, I made sure not to tell them anything about it, just take them there with a visceral um, reaction to this, to this nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And you know, I mean, you put your finger on it. And I think that that's, that's a real challenge for working with these historical texts um, and their representation, because they were written almost exclusively for and by white people. So even when we get glimmers of some some of what enslaved people might have experienced through song or through some document, you know, or a poem. It's, um, it's so layered with whiteness and with, uh, and, and it's very similar to the Blake poem that you mentioned. And so uh, we have to hold that <laughs> to the, you know, to these records and, and hold it up to it. And um, it also, what you were saying reminded me of Hamilton a bit, you know, when you were saying using a kind of black, presence on a stage but you know with some white messages um and it's kind of that's been really interesting in the u.s the popularity of the play yes uh, you know using black actors to portray slave-owning white american founding fathers and what does that do 
um, you know, you can argue like William did, you know, well, it opens people's eyes and uh, makes us imagine differently. And, you know, on the other hand, it's erasing um, the origins of, of some of these figures and their true points of view. So I just think we've got yeah. so far to go and we've, we've got to start somewhere in different places. I mean, I'm really pleased that the, the outcome of that disagreement Tosin and I had is that we've now done sort of 50 radio shows together which has been great fun <laughs> and I've really enjoyed them and I carry, I keep carry on enjoying them and so this this show at Durham Park this National Trust show with your work Mary Caton with the musical passages that starts I think quite soon I believe so um, yeah and you're not, not able to come over to, to see it unfortunately I guess I wish someday someday I'd love to come and uh I'd love to be in that space and, and, and to witness, you know, does the musical presence help to transform it or, you know, uh, how does that work? Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see the, the effect and the reception. My expectation is that it'll be a deep challenge. I think that everything we would associate with African diaspora music, all the, the spontaneity and the connection and the excitement and the dance, all of that would feel the opposite of what Durham Park is like. And I think Durham Park, uh, I mean, it's a challenge of maintaining a huge expensive building and that kind of stuff. It is sort of beautiful and grand in a way, but you have to go very, very deep in Durham Park to address the wrongness. And I suspect, I, I think that what, what they've done by taking on your project feels to me a really smart move because I think it does go really deep and it's really, really thought provoking. And it's engaging and accessible. I love the performances you've done. I think it's really tremendous. So we will try and Tozin, can we make it up to Durham Park? Are we allowed to go there? Do you think it's not all virtual, is it? No, I think I think you're allowed to go there. Um, we'll go. We'll check it out. We're still not um, in any formal lockdown, are we? So no, we're, no, we're both yeah, vulnerable. One of the few places. Me, because I'm so old. I'm <laughs> um, so, well, I so, hope you'll give me a report when you do go. I'd love to know your impressions and, you know, your honest impressions about uh, all of it. Um, I, I welcome them. Well, we've been trying to interview Tom, um, haven't we? Tom will come on the show. He, he's, he wants to go on not before it was all on there, but after. And he, I think we'll have a very, very interesting conversation with him. He's a very, very thoughtful guy. And... Uh, so I'm looking forward to that a lot, uh, and we'll check it out. And Mary Kayson, I do hope you're able at some point to come and visit us in Bath, to I see Durham Park. And yeah, I'm so excited yeah. to learn more about uh, Fairfield House and your organization. And the, um, you know, it's just, it's really cool. I've actually been to, to Bath years and years ago. Um, yeah. I traveled to England with my mom when I was in high school. Um, but that was so long ago. I can barely what did remember. you see? Was it memorable? I do remember, um, you know, going to the, I don't remember what it's called, but like where the actual baths are, yeah. you know, and the, the kind of, I, I remember seeing that. Yeah. And, sort of have to, uh, you know, I was reading uh, persuasion or, yeah. or something. And yeah. so I, I kind of um, had my literary notion of yeah. Regency era bath in my yeah. mind. Um, but of course there's so much more to discover and, uh, I'd, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the bake, great, great British baking show. So I, I want to go to eat baked goods and, um, the gardens in the UK, but I will say I, I've had a lot of um, researchers from the UK reaching out or I'm, I'm helping with a, a project out of the university of Edinburgh examining, um, the sugar trade between Scotland and the Caribbean and bringing together Caribbean musicians and 
Scottish musicians to kind of think about that period. And that's really interesting. So it's, um, it's exciting to see uh, these questions being raised. And um, I would love nothing more than to come to Bath and have some of your local musicians, especially black musicians in the community, you know, think through this music. And um, that would be just wonderful. Um, we can do that. I mean, Bath's got, um, got formal music venues. It yeah. also has something quite unusual, which was the, the, the country's at largest cooperative pub buyout is a very strong music pub dating from the 17th century. And um, it's called The Bell. Wow. And it just, it's, it's not even a particularly brilliant sort of shape or environment for performing music. It has the most compelling musical performances uh, around. And a lot of bands have sort of, you know, first performed at The Bell. They put on a special benefit for Fairfield House with uh, the reggae band Talisman playing. My, my proudest hour, because I was in the support band. Um, I mean, the last time we did a benefit for February, oh, it's always free as well, but there's no t entry ticket. They just sell the most prodigious amounts of beer and cider. So it's a lovely place to go to. <laughs> can, I, can I sort of, um, my last word on, on this is to say that one of the things I liked about your project um, was the fact that you used contemporary Jamaican artists. I mean, I had a, a, a little... It was a little problematic for me that there were so many of them were um, Rastafarian because that would then give, for somebody who was not so um, familiar with um, the history, might give the sense that maybe the Rastafarian is, is a much older faith mm -hmm. than it is and that it was, some, it was a faith that was um, uh, being practiced at the time that the music was composed. So for me, that was a tiny bit problematic. But what I really loved was that you, in this project, were giving contemporary musicians the opportunity to engage with this music and to engage with it on their own terms. Um, this is something that I very much have problems with, in the sense, with our museum here. And been trying to get them to understand the importance of allowing the artists, giving them the space to engage with the work on their own terms. Um, but there's very much, again, that look, looking back, where it's sort of like lots of focus on slavery, but not on the contemporary um, artists, not on allowing that artist that space to, to, um, to look at it and to um, interpret it. So I loved that about your project. I think that was the most, for me, that was the most powerful part is that you, let, you gave them the space to find their voice. I mean, you can't see that, obviously, because it's radio, but if one goes onto the YouTube and one watches, mm -hmm. you can see them playing and experimenting until they come to this and, okay, this is how it works and all of them coming together. I love the power that you gave them to do that. Well, I'm so pleased and I have to credit um, uh, Matthew Smith, who uh, now is uh, working at um, maybe the Center for, I have to look up, he's in the UK now, but he uh, was the chair of the Department of History and Archaeology at the University of West Indies, Mona. Um, and he's very interested in music. He would be great to have on your show someday. Uh, he's just an extraordinary scholar. And um, he helped arrange that with the um, Herbie Miller, who's uh, heads the Jamaican Music Museum. So it was thanks to um, colleagues in, in Jamaica who really, you know, uh, it, it's all about those human relationships, you know, it's, and, and my um, collaborator, Laurent Dubois, who's there giving a 
lecture. I'm glad that you appreciate that. And for me, it's, it's less about getting at, even though I'm writing a book about the history of this music from 1600 to 1800, the purpose, the point of it is less about this kind of historical accuracy for me. And it's more about memorialization and the living memory. And what, and like you said, what matters to the musicians in the present? The, their interpretation is gonna be different than mine. And that's okay, like that's the point. Um, and I think you're so right that when we are looking to the past and grappling with these pasts, we have to think about what people want in the present and their needs today and let people do their art and make their music. Um, and I learned so much from getting to witness that performance. And what was really interesting too was the Rastafarian ensemble, when they played the music, um, you know, they really took it into their own sound and their own, um, even though some of the member people playing with the band were not Rastafarian or not in that ensemble, you know, they kind of brought it home to their contemporary sound. And then when I played the music for um, the University of West Indies Corral, um, when I played our music on our website, they were kind of like you, Tosin, when you heard it the first time, they're kind of like, huh, like, what is this? I'm not really sure what to make of this music. And then when they heard Chinna Smith and his band play the music, it was like light bulbs went off. And, you know, uh, Sean Wright, the director of the ensemble, his eyes lit up and he said, this sounds like running home. This is like, this is Jamaican music hearing. Um, and it was really powerful for me to witness that because I can study the books and the history and the past, but what it means to the people um, to Jamaican people, to Jamaican musicians, you know, it's its own thing and it's already there. Maybe these musicians have been erased from the history books, but they've not been forgotten. Their sounds are living on, they're powerful, they're being remembered and honored. Um, and that's so beautiful. We don't need museums for that in some ways, you know, that so ancestral legacy. We'd like to credit some of the collaborators on the Musical Pathogens work. Mary Caton mentions Laurent Dubois, who's Professor of History and Romance Studies at Duke University, David K. Garner, Assistant Professor of Music at the University of South Carolina, two people who helped arrange the performances in Jamaica, Matthew J. Smith, who's now Director of the Centre of the Study of Legacies of British Slave Ownership at UCL. Matthew, we want you on the show, please. And Herbie Miller from the Jamaica Music Museum. If you want to see the musical passages workshops the best thing is go to youtube and search for musical passage workshop we'd also like to say a special thank you to tom bowden who's the general manager for the national trust for Durham park the bath skyline prior park and the bath assembly rooms this was tom's idea and his initiative so we're very very grateful and tom we look forward to speaking to you thank you so um, we've been listening to Musical Passages, which is a special project by Mary Caton Lingold and collaborators. We've been listening to interpretations of what must be the earliest notations of West African music, which has given rise to so much of the music that we love across the world. Uh, you're tuned to Imperial Voice. This has been In Our City. I'm William Heath. I'm Uluwate St. Onilere. Mary Caton, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been an honour and a pleasure. And we look forward to welcoming you to Bath in real life to the house of his Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie I.